Welcome to Sovereign Grace. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 25. We're going to start in verse 19 as we continue our series in Genesis. So turn with me there. I'm going to begin reading in Genesis 25. And I'm going to read from verses 19 through the end of the chapter. So let's consider this together. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted and Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his help in understanding it. Father, we do come before you recognizing that your spirit has superintended the word of God through Moses for the sake of Israel as she came out of Egypt in the Exodus and for the sake of your church in every age. So we understand who you are. And what you're doing, not only in creating and providing for us, but in saving us. Help us to understand this genealogy of Isaac, this prophecy about his two sons, and what we see laid out before us with regard to their struggle with one another. And then help us apply that to our own hearts and minds, so that we walk in a manner that pleases the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this pericope or this section from Genesis 25, 19 through 34 is a bit like a movie trailer. What do I mean by that? You are seeing the beginning of the family conflict between two sons and the outcome of that conflict in a kind of short preview. 
It's all being sort of laid out before you before it happens in a really quick form. This section about Isaac and his family, a section interestingly about Isaac that will largely focus on Jacob and his life, except for Genesis 26, which will focus more on Isaac, will span from Genesis 25, 19, where the genealogy begins, until Genesis 35, 29. So look at Genesis 25, 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Remember I told you that Genesis is arranged around 10 genealogies. These are the generations. Or another way of saying it is, this is the family history of. Well, these generations that we're looking at now begin with Isaac, Abraham's son. This is the eighth genealogy in Genesis. And it will encompass the whole of Isaac's life and really most of Jacob's life and his struggle with his brother Esau. And it concludes in 3529, just after the birth of Joseph. And that's important. But in 3529, look there, Genesis 25, you can see the conclusion of this section Genesis 35 and verse 29. You'll see it. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. It's kind of repetitive of what's said about Abraham. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now look at 36.1. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. You're getting the anti-genealogy of Esau. So what's happening here in Genesis 25, 19 is we're transitioning from the story of Abraham to the story of Isaac, his son. But I don't want you to think there's some kind of radical break here. We use the word radical to mean all kinds of crazy stuff. But radical, radix at the root. This is not a radical divider at the root between Abraham and Isaac that's happening. So I don't want you to see it that way. We're really transitioning, but we're transitioning in such a way that Isaac's story is built on top of Abraham's story. So look again at 25, 19 through 21. These are the generations of Isaac. Now notice, Abraham's son. And notice again, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean, of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now look down at verse 26. It's the last phrase. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore him. So you have this kind of quick summary with regard to Abraham and Isaac. Really two quick facts. The genealogy has this unusual retrospective back to Abraham prior to moving forward. So before we're going to get to Isaac's family history, we're going to look back first to Abraham. That doesn't typically happen in genealogies, but it does here. Second, Isaac is shown to go through some similar circumstances of Abraham. So you notice Isaac takes a wife, and what do you notice about the wife? She is barren. And so Isaac prays. And it takes 20 years. You notice that? He was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife. And he's praying for the Lord to open her womb. He's 60 years old when she finally bears the two children. So he goes through a long, 20 years is a long time to pray for something. You guys understand that? 
goes through a long period of time with a barren wife, and he seeks the Lord for help. Now, unlike his father Abraham, Isaac patiently waited for 20 years. He didn't shack up with one of the maidservants, right? But here's what I want you to grasp. This whole narrative, 2519 through the end of 3529, this whole narrative, which is moving us forward from Abraham to Isaac, is still grounding everything upon Abraham. It's even comparing Isaac to Abraham. You're going to see the comparison between Abraham and Isaac even more in chapter 26. Abraham and the promises he receives are central to the entire narrative of the Pentateuch, or the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. In fact, arguably, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 are not only paradigmatic for the whole of the first five books of the Bible, but it's paradigmatic for the entire redemptive story in Christ. Abraham's promises, what I'm saying, are the grounding for the whole redemptive story in Christ. Abraham, thus, is called the father of the Christian faith. It is the announcement of the promises to Abraham that actually ring forth in the gospel narratives of the birth of Christ. God kept his promise to Abraham, Mary's Magnificat. God kept his promises to Abraham, Zechariah's prayer about the birth of John the Baptist. It is the promises to Abraham that are ringing forth in the whole ministry of the Christ from his teaching to his death and resurrection. It is the promises to Abraham that ring forth in Christ ascending and pouring out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Abraham, if you will, overshadows the whole of redemptive history. And thus Isaac's genealogy does this unusual thing of looking back to Abraham before it looks forward to Isaac and then Jacob. Because you need to keep the whole story in its context. Ultimately, this is a story about God creating man, man falling into sin, God promising to save man through a particular offspring, the seed of the woman, and that is narrowed at Genesis 12 to be clearly focused on the seed who comes from Abraham. And the rest of the Bible is going to lay that out until he comes. So that Matthew will open with this. The beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What? The son of David, the son of Abraham. So as we consider this passage before us today, I want you to remember that we're moving forward in the story that Moses is telling us about how the Lord is saving us in his son, Jesus Christ. Don't lose sight of that. So we're going to consider God's saving grace in Christ, if you will, under two headings. Or we're going to take this section in two parts. First, here's what they are. God's sovereign grace and election. God's sovereign grace and election, Genesis 25, 22 through 26. And then second, man's responsibility to believe. Man's responsibility to believe, Genesis 25, 27 through 34. Now there's overlap, but... Those are roughly the parts we're going to take on. So let's consider our first major heading, God's sovereign grace in election. Now as we move into this section, we're considering the twins. You guys remember that? Jacob and Esau, the twins that the Lord gave to Isaac and Rebekah. And we want to look at the twins, if you will, in this subsection in two parts. 
first we're going to look at the struggle between the twins. We're going to watch the struggle between the two. And then we're going to look at the prophecy about them. The prophecy is specifically in verse 23. The struggles in verse 22 and then verses 24 to 26. So let's consider the struggle between the two boys. Look at verse 22. The children, remember Isaac had prayed and they're finally 20 years of waiting. They're finally having the children, twins. The children struggled together within her. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's like they were, which is interesting, going back to Genesis 3.15, like they're trying to crush each other's heads. If you remember the promise in Genesis 3.15, I don't think that, you know, language is unintentional. They're struggling in the womb within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? In other words, if you could imagine having twins in you who are basically trying to stomp each other out, and you're a mother experiencing that, you're just basically going to the Lord saying, just let me die now. That's essentially what she's saying. But do I have to keep on going with this? Okay. And so she went to the Lord to inquire the Lord. Verse 22, she went to inquire the Lord. By the way, that's a technical phrase you're going to see throughout the Pentateuch and even into Kings. That's a technical phrase that she goes to a prophet. Now, what prophet does she go to? We don't know. Certainly Abraham is called a prophet. And he's alive at this point, so it may be that she went to Abraham, maybe that she went to Isaac. I don't really know. The text is not interested in telling us that. But it is a technical phrase for going to a prophet. So she goes to a prophet to inquire the Lord. And then it says, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. We're going to come back and look at this, but this is when she finds out she's having twins. And that they don't like each other very much. So you have the struggle in the womb, verse 22. They're battling in the womb. There's a struggle at their birth. Look at verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. We'll come back to that. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. We'll also come back to that. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Here's the point that I want you to get a hold of now. We'll come back to these descriptions. We see at the very beginning how the relationship between Isaac and Esau is going to play out in Genesis. They are at war in the womb, and even as they begin to exit the womb at birth, Jacob is grabbing Esau's heel, basically saying, no, you're not going first, I am. They're fighting all the way. But how will the battle turn out between them? Who will prevail in this battle between these twins? That's what verse 23 is telling you. So look at verse 23 again. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. See, there's a division coming between your two sons. They will form two separate nations. One will be called Edom. The other will be called Israel. The one shall be stronger than the other. Well, which one shall be stronger? Well, the older shall serve the younger. So the younger one shall be the stronger one who dominates the older one. Which child is born first? Esau. Which child is born second? Jacob. 
Which child will be victorious over the other? Jacob will be victorious. And what you're getting here paradigmatically is a verse that tells you about this entire section from Genesis 25:19 through 35:29. You're actually learning right in this prophecy the outcome of the relationship between Jacob and Esau. If you will, Genesis 25:23 is to this section as Genesis 12:1 through 3 is to the Abrahamic section. Genesis 12:1 through 3 is going to lay out what's going to happen. You're going to go to a land that's not your own. It's going to be yours. A mighty nation is going to come from you. And you're going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And you're going to have all this offspring, et cetera, et cetera. So then we see that laid out in Genesis 12 through 22. And then the rest of the Bible, frankly. And now we're seeing Genesis 25, 23 really being laid out in the whole narrative about the relationship between Jacob and Esau which is going to comprise this entire section of Genesis, which is why I'm spending so much time here. Because you're laying the foundation in this one verse for what's happening in this entire section of Genesis. The rest of the account is really going to be devoted to Jacob, to the development of his character, and to the conflict he has with his brother Esau. Now this passage is telling you about the ground, listen, the ground of the struggle between Jacob and Esau, and it's telling you about the outcome of that struggle. The ground of the struggle, what is the ground, the foundation of the struggle between Jacob and Esau? Here it is, you ready? The sovereign decree of God that Jacob would be the seed of the woman and Esau would be the seed of the serpent. That's the ground of it. The ground of it is not found in the two men. The ground of it is found in the decree of God. Before they're even born, Jacob will be the seed of the woman, Esau will be the seed of the serpent. The outcome is that Jacob will conquer Esau. Now here comes a question, and I hope this question's arisen in your mind. I'm almost certain that it has. Am I saying, is Moses saying, is the Bible saying, and hopefully all three of us are saying the same thing, right? Are we saying that God chose to bless Jacob to salvation and to leave Esau under the curse before they were even born? Because if you're the seed of the woman and you're the seed of the serpent and that's decreed before you're even born, the seed of the woman is saved. That's not just a reference to the Christ to come, but to all those people who are united to him, his church. The seed of the woman is saved. The seed of the serpent is damned. Am I saying, is Moses saying, is the Bible saying that God chose to bless Jacob with salvation and to leave Esau under the curse before they're even born? The answer is yes. Yes. And am I arguing, this is kind of the follow-up, that God's choice between the two boys, God's choice is the ground for the outcome of their lives. Yes, God's choice is the ground for the outcome in their lives. So, in case you think I'm making too much of this, turn to Romans 9, because Paul has some commentary. Romans chapter 9. We won't spend a long time expositing this, but just looking briefly at how he lays it out. Keep in mind, as we look at Romans 9, that from Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20, Paul is laying out why all of us need salvation in Christ. 
Jew and Gentile, all alike are under sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve damnation, whether Jew or Gentile. From Romans 3.21 all the way through to the end of Romans 8, Paul is laying out how that salvation happens in Christ, some of the struggle with regard to our sanctification in Christ, and all of these glorious promises that we have in Romans 8, that if you belong to Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And even though there are struggles in this life, that God is at work in you for your good and his glory, and he will complete your salvation. So he's just laying this all out, and a question comes up. Romans 9 through 11 is almost like an excursus. If I'm writing a paper and I hit a topic, and then I'm like, you know what, I need to take a break here and address that topic in more depth because people are going to have questions, and then I'll come back to my main argument. Well, Romans 9 through 11 is almost like an excursus because Paul's just laid out the gospel of salvation, and then a question comes up. If God's love is really that good that no one can be separated from it, then what happened to the Jews? So many of them don't believe. And if God made all these promises, and they received all these promises, then why are so many of them unbelievers? I mean, if nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, what happened to them? So Romans 9, you'll see him talk about this, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Why does Paul have unceasing anguish in his heart? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. In other words, Paul's a Jew, and he's looking saying, look at most of my Jewish brothers are unbelievers. I would trade places with them so they would be saved. Look what he says about them, these Jews. They are Israelites. In other words, they're from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And if that's not enough, to them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Wow, man. Well, so, if they all have that, how could they be cursed? How could that be? Why aren't they believing in the Christ? Now, Paul's answer. Because here's the question that's nagging on the reader's mind. If they have all of that, they have the promises. They have the covenants. They have the fathers, the crisis from their line. They've had the covenant signs, circumcision, and the Passover. How in the world could they not be saved? And Paul's answer is essentially to the question, it's not because God's promises failed. Because that's the thing that comes up. Well then, if God made all these promises to them, and then they're not saved, did God fail to keep his promises? Because he clearly made it to them. He even signed it on the foreskin of their flesh. That's dramatic. So did he keep them? Did he fail to keep them? Here's Paul's answer, verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. See, God's promises haven't failed. Now here's why. 
For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Did you just catch that? There's two ways to define Israel in the same verse. Not all Israel is Israel. So he's going to say, yes, all these physical Jews are Israel. Yes, all these physical Jews have the promises, the covenants, the fathers, etc. Christ is from their line. But not all these physical Jews are spiritual Jews. He's dealt with that at the end of Romans 2 as well. And what's behind that? Look, verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. Well, I mean, isn't that precisely what makes you a child of somebody? That you were born from them? He's saying there's a more significant spiritual fatherhood that they lack. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, that's a contract with Ishmael. Now look what he goes on to say. This means it's not the children of the flesh, those who are physically born from Abraham, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, those who are spiritually born of Abraham, if you will. For this is what the promise said. Now notice, about this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. Abraham and Sarah are having trouble having a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, pay attention, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. So were they born yet? No. Had they done anything good or bad yet? No. Okay, you guys clear on that? These twins. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's taking you to Malachi 1. But here's the thing. Why are some Jews, those who are part of the visible church, who had the promises and covenants, who had the covenant signs, from whom Christ physically came, why are some of them not believing in the Christ? Because, answer from Paul, Romans 9, 6 through 13, they're not elect. Meditate on that for a minute. And what's election based upon? God's purpose of election. See how simple that is? Not on birth order, not on anything good or bad in the twins themselves. God's purpose. Now, here's the question that you'll probably follow up with. If you're anything like me, how is that fair? That doesn't seem fair, right? Isn't God unjust when he elects to show mercy to Jacob and not to Esau? That seems unjust. If you're like me, especially in the 1990s when I first read this passage and wrestled through it, I actually chucked my Bible across the room and said, well, I can't believe in this God. In other words, it was kind of a big adult temper tantrum. I don't like this. It's unfair. Look at Romans 9.14. Paul gives you an answer. It might not satisfy you. He assumes you're going to say it's unfair. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Here's the answer. You ready? By no means. You satisfied with that? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Listen, what does it depend on? Well, not on this. Human will, your choice, or exertion, your work. How could it? Jacob and Esau were elect or not elect before they were born. 
depends not on that, but on God, verse 16, very end, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, who didn't get mercy, it's terrible to be Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, so I can crush you under my boot and show everybody who God is. Now to say, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But then how is it Esau's fault? Do you guys understand the problem now? Okay, but then how is it Esau's fault that he's condemned to die in sin? If God never elected to show mercy to him. Is it really Esau's fault if God never elected to show mercy to him? Paul answers that, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You ready for the answer? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Did you just hear that answer? How can this be fair and how can it be his fault? And God's answer is, close your mouth, you're a creature. You know, you do that to your children sometimes, right? They don't get it. This isn't fair. I'm your parent. I brought you into the world. I can take you out of the world, right? You understand that? You guys understand that whole thing? That's essentially what the Lord is saying through Paul, but in an ever more true sense. Look what he goes on to say. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Look, here's the answer. Don't talk back to God. You guys seen potters make a clay pot? Now, can you imagine a guy's on the potter wheel? There he is. He's making it. He's making a bowl out of the clay. And this is what Paul's saying. How ridiculous would it be for the bowl to look up at him and say, why am I a bowl and not a plate? How come I'm a bowl that's going to have refuse in it and not a bowl that's going to have rich food in it? It's utterly ridiculous. And Paul's essentially saying to you, you're a creature. He's the creator. Close your mouth. He can make creatures for whatever end he wants to make them for. And if God chose to show mercy to you, then rejoice in the fact that he did. The Lord chose mercy to whom he wills. The Lord sovereignly and graciously elected Jacob and not Esau. This means the Lord set his electing love and mercy upon Jacob before the foundation of the world. And the Lord chose before the foundation of the world to leave Esau in his sin. That is the Lord's prerogative. He is God and he does all his holy will. He can be merciful to whoever he wills. He can leave in sin and judgment whomever he wills. Listen, if it's up to you, then it's not according to grace, is it? It's not. And if it's by grace, then it's not based upon your good works. Paul addresses that in Romans 11 when he talks about the fact that there are Jews presently being saved. He actually names himself as one of them. There are Jews presently being saved. God has a remnant chosen by grace. And look what he says. You don't have to turn there, but verse 5 of Romans 11 so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Here's the bottom line. If you say you believe that you're 
justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and you really believe grace alone, then you believe in election. If you think election is based on your desire, will, or effort, then you do not believe in grace alone. You just don't. Friends, your salvation is by grace alone precisely because you did nothing to earn it. Not one thing. You did nothing to deserve it. Not one thing. God sovereignly set his electing love and mercy upon you in Christ before the foundation of the world. In case that's not clear enough, Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, the Father, chose us, the recipients, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Did you catch that? In love, he predestined us. Did you know that determined your destination beforehand? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the good he saw in you. Nope. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, that does not deny, you might think, I'm sure you're struggling going, then that means we don't really have any real choice and we don't have actual human responsibility. And what I want you to say is, you do have human responsibility. We're not denying that at all. We are responsible for sin. We are to believe the Lord and his word. It is still true that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We're still responsible. You are still justly condemned due to your sin. You still must believe in the Lord Jesus if you hope to be saved. And that leads to our second point, man's responsibility to believe. Go back to Genesis 25. Man's responsibility to believe. Genesis 25, verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we're now transitioned from the twins in the womb and at birth to the twins grown up. In the womb, they're at war. At birth, one, Jacob is trying to usurp the other, Esau. Now I want you to note the description of the two boys growing up. But in noting that description, I'm going to kind of push us back to their birth narrative a bit. Look at verse 25 with regard to Esau. Let's look at Esau first. The first, this is Esau, came out red. All his body was like a hairy cloak, so they called him Esau. Look, when your body's all hairy and the hair is red, in the ancient Near East, that's a way of saying you're wild and unclean and probably untrustworthy because you're governed by your passions. Redheads were seen that way in the ancient Near East and in the medieval period. In fact, you look at some medieval art, you can see Judas Iscariot has red hair. Sorry, redheads. You're wild and given to your passions. You're damned. It's over. Sorry. No. That's not the point. That's not the point. <laughs> but you understand that's, like, our culture kind of is that way. Redheads are hot-tempered, and you guys have heard that kind of thing before. But for some reason, throughout the history of man, all the way back in Genesis, redheads are still a little bit suspect. I don't know why, but they are. Okay, verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. All right, 
a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Again, the focus is on him being wild and unclean. He's hairy, and he's out in the field. He doesn't even bother to come into the tents and get clean. He's just out there hunting in the field. He's kind of gross. He's inherently untrustworthy because he's governed by his passions. You know, Esau is a man's man. He's buying that men's product that's like Sasquatch or whatever. He's a man's man. And perhaps not unsurprisingly, his father Isaac favors him. Dads can tend to like a man's man, a skillful hunter. Let's look at Jacob. Look first at verse 26. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Now, when your hand is holding their heel and your name Jacob, what that means is the name Jacob is like the phrase, he cheats. He cheats. He grasps after the heel. One of my friends who did dissertation in Genesis actually said, you know, he's jerking at the heel, and that's what he seems like, a jerk, right? And just using that play on word. But he's a cheat. He's a deceiver. He's grabbing at his brother's heel. He's a trickster. He's a man ready to deceive to get whatever he wants to be his. That's what his name literally means. In fact, that's what Esau will say. In Genesis 27, 36, Esau actually just says it. Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. It's the right name for him because he's a cheat. Jacob was also a quiet man dwelling in tents. Look at verse 27 again. While Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. He's a more refined man. He lives close to home. And Rebecca favored him. Women actually tend to favor this kind of son, interestingly enough. They don't always understand the hairy, wild hunter son. So neither of these boys, though, I guess what I'm summing up here is, neither of these boys seem like a particularly godly child. Further, they have parents who are participating in favoritism. You see the family conflict that's already starting? There's a setup for family strife and conflict that will run through the entire section of Genesis. Now, let's consider one story about these twins because you're like, well, clearly God chose Jacob and not Esau because he's a better guy. So far, not so much. Now go on to verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, he's at home being somewhat domestic, living near the tent, cooking stew. His mother loves it. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Now, just so you know, in Hebrew it's more dramatic. It's like, red stew, red stew, give me some of that red stew. I mean, it's just like, just coming from his gut, I've got to have some of that red stew, right? So that's where he's at. You know what this is like when your teenage son comes walking down all hairy and unclean. What's for dinner? Like, hello, how was your day? Fine. What are we eating? This is Esau. Okay. Therefore, his name is called Edom, which puns on this word red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. I mean, you're so hungry. Give me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use to me is a birthright? Okay, so you think about this. I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. Why do I care about a birthright? This guy is so governed by his gut, it's just hard to imagine. But you see this, don't you? 
If you haven't yet, wait till your son's about 17. You'll see it. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Again, we see Esau as this passionate man whose God is his belly. Further, we see Jacob using every opportunity he can to usurp, cheat Esau out of his birthright. His brother has failed in the hunt. He's a skillful hunter, but he's failed. He came back with nothing, so he needs the stew. And Jacob seizes that opportunity to take his birthright. So let me just summarize it this way. These twins both seem like terrible people. Don't they? Terrible people. One is wild, unclean, a hot-tempered redhead governed by his passion. The other is a scheming, deceiving cheat who stays close to home looking for every opportunity to take advantage. So why is Jacob elect by God to receive grace and mercy and Esau not? Well, let's admit why he's not. It's clear that Jacob is not elect because Jacob's a really good guy. In fact, one of the primary problems with Jacob throughout this section of Genesis is that he keeps trying to grab hold of God's blessing by his own cunning and efforts. He will try to obtain God's covenant blessings on the basis of his own efforts. And perhaps, now I'm going to suggest this to you, this is where you have to start to read these narratives well, Perhaps this is where the little crack of light begins to separate Jacob and Esau. Understand what I'm saying. Jacob is sinful, immature, deceitful, and filled with pride. You get all that? That's not a good summary. But what does Jacob want? More than anything else, he wants the birthright. Does you know what that means? A double share of covenant promises and later his father's blessing. Notice what Jacob wants. He wants the covenant promises. He wants the patriarchal inheritance. And throughout the entire narrative, you will see the Lord mature Jacob's understanding of how he receives that and the Lord killing Jacob's pride. That's what you're going to see. Jacob will continue to strive and fight for covenant blessings until the discipline of the Lord over time bears the peaceful fruit of righteousness such that he becomes, in the end, a humble and prayerful man who trusts the Lord. In Genesis, Jacob will slowly learn to rest in the covenant Lord and his covenant promises. Esau, however, despises his birthright. That means he's despising the inheritance of his father. He's despising the covenant Lord and the covenant Lord's promises. Esau shows no interest in God's covenant promises. He just wants to gratify the passions of his flesh. That's it. That's all he wants to do. In fact, look at Genesis 25, 34, because it's really interesting language. Notice these quick verbs. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Very quick kind of staccato set of verbs. Those first two verbs, he gave and he ate, are exactly the same verbs in Genesis 3, 6. 
She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And that, if you will, allusion is not accidental. Esau, like Adam and Eve, is forsaking God and his promises for the sake of his belly. He's governed by his passions. His eyes are on the here and now. He has no interest in the Lord. This is why Hebrews warns us that no one should be like unholy Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. In doing so, Esau demonstrated his apostasy. Notice this. He and Jacob both grew up with godly parents in the context of a covenant household. He was given covenant promises and covenant signs of God's promises. He was in line to inherit a double portion of the inheritance, and he forsook it all to gratify the passions of his flesh. Sovereign grace be warned here. Children, you should be warned. You grow up in a household with godly parents, you come to a church, you hear the gospel over and over again, you participate in all these blessings, and then your gut, your passions, lead you astray. That can happen to you. Be warned. But everybody else, be warned. Being a part of Christ's visible church, what we see and taste and touch, if you will, is a blessing, but that's not going to save you. You must trust in Christ to be saved. You must repent of the passions of your flesh, of what is earthly in you, and you must walk with the Lord Jesus. A true and lively faith necessarily springs forth in repentance from sin and obedience to God's law. Temporary and false faith, that exists. You can see it in the parable of the sower. Temporary and false faith does not repent and does not strive for obedience. Rather, temporary and false faith uses the grace of God as a license for sin. You just wave your little magic gospel wand over all your behavior and pretend like it doesn't matter. As if grace is that ungracious that God would save you from your sins and then leave you in them. Paul deals with that in Romans 6. Those who profess faith but do not continue in the faith or do not stand firm, Paul warns us about those people. Listen. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, Philippians 3.18, who I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it is in this distinction between Jacob and Esau, this distinction between Jacob and Esau, where you will slowly begin to see the work of God's grace demonstrated in the distinct lives of these twins. One of these twins, Jacob, slowly comes to understand that God is sovereign, God is gracious, and he needs to humble himself and trust him. The other chases his passions to the very end. They both start out an unmitigated disaster, and they both spend a good portion of their life as a total mess. But one of them is transformed into a person who's humble and believes in the Lord. The other is not. You do not see that scene by scene. You don't. You see it in the overall trajectory of their lives. Jacob believes, and as the Lord disciplines him for sin, he grows in humble faith. Esau does not believe, 
he does not repent, and ultimately he despises the Lord. But I do want to caution you here. I just want to give this caution. You are not seeing how Jacob is better than Esau as we go along. That's not what you're seeing. You are seeing how God is working out his gracious promises made before the twins were even born as we go along. Here's what you're learning. Dr. Matthews, one of the commentators, wrote this. The will of the divine purpose is ultimately what counts, not the personalities, character, or intentions of the participants themselves. Yet, it is important to recall that with this sense of divine direction to which the text subtly alludes, the patriarchal narrative shows explicitly that human participation and accountability are involved in the outcome that proceeds. In other words, yes, God's decree and election is ultimate, not the personalities, character, or intentions of the twins. But it is also true that human participation and accountability are real and are involved in the outcome. God appointed the end, election to all spiritual blessings in Christ by grace. God appointed the means to the end, human responsibility to hear the word of Christ and believe it. He appointed both. And you might say, I don't understand how both can be true. So what? You're a clay pot. Did you get, get, get how that works? You don't even understand why you do the things that you do, and you're a speck in the universe. If you can't figure out why you do what you do, you think you're going to wrap your mind around God's decrees? Just give up the ghost on that. Just give it up, move on. God's word says he elects out of his own good purposes, and God says you're responsible, move along. Believe what it says. Believe God, listen to his word, repent of your pride. Trust that your only hope is found in Jesus Christ. Trust that his revealed Word in the Bible is your supreme authority. And if he reveals it, then it's true. Look to Jesus as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins. And friends, remember that in Christ, God has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In love, he decreed to do that before the foundation of the world. So you know what your response to God's electing grace is for you? Not, I can't understand. It's, on such love my soul still ponder. Love so great, so rich, so free. Say while lost in holy wonder, why, O oh Lord, such love to me? Why such love to me? Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help to understand your word, to understand the grace we've been shown in Christ. And we confess that as we grow and mature and go through various suffering, discipline, persecution, circumstances that are difficult, we confess that as we see ourselves grow in faith and humility, that this is all grounded upon the gracious salvation that you've shown us in Christ. It isn't because we're better than our neighbor, it isn't because we deserve better than our neighbor. It's because you loved us before the foundation of the world and chose us in Christ. This is a mystery for us. We pray that rather than trying to figure out everything about you and your divine decrees, we would receive your word with joy and ponder on why you've shown us such great love.
In Jesus' name, amen.